Hi. Welcome to our podcast. I am Kelly Birmingham, and this is our podcast, A 25-Year Look Back Across the Autism Spectrum. I am the creator and host of this podcast, and I am chronicling my 25-plus years career working with adults and children on the develop- with developmental disabilities and autism. Normally, I have my partner in crime, Jen Lucero, mom to Dylan and Ethan, but she is on a much needed break. So today I'm going to spend a little bit of time talking about a topic that is near and dear to my heart. But before I get started, I'd like to give a shout out to our sponsor for our podcast, which is SitePro. SitePro offers a wide range of engaging and practical continuing education courses developed by BCBAs for BCBAs, including myself. I have several CEU courses on uh, the SitePro website. Um, To see the complete list of CEU library, including all of our podcasts, my podcasts, provided for free, um, free CEUs, go to sitepro.com. So I'm going to get started with this topic. So let let me give a little bit of perspective. I am a BCBA. As I said, I've been in the field for more than 25 years. I have been certified as a BCBA 20 years this year. and I was certified in 2003. So on my journey, when I was certified, I started off doing a lot of discrete trial teaching. Back then in 2003, there weren't a lot, there weren't curriculum per se. There was one book, Catherine Maurice's book, Let Me Hear Your Voice, with a lot of very specific discrete skills. It was quite good for its time. And I spent a lot of time working on those very specific discrete skills with children, with a lot of great success. A lot of the clients we worked with did quite well. What I started to notice, however, several years in was that I didn't have a really good understanding of developmental psychology. I didn't know what skills a child on the autism spectrum were missing. Like like what would a neurotypical child's skills look like and, and how could I bridge that gap? And so I started looking a lot at the DSM-5 or back then it was DSM-4 criteria and saying, hmm, I see that autism includes, you know, like market deficits and social communication and social interaction, including restrictive and repetitive behaviors and neuro interest and focus. But what did it look like for a neurotypical child? So that sent me down a rabbit hole of looking and finding like what were very specific milestones that children should be developing and how could I help teach children on the autism spectrum those skills? That led me to putting together a big checklist of different skills to teach, which developed, turned into the book that I wrote with my uh, colleague, Janice Krempa, that came out in 2003. And actually, first version was 2002, second version was 2003, called Social Skills Solution Hands-On Manual. 20 years later, I still use a lot of that checklist, although I have, have updated that checklist and um, fine-tuned it because I did, a number of years later, go back and become certified in what is called the Early Start Denver model. And if you don't know that uh, particular approach, it is considered evidence-based approach. There's a lot of research that talks about how effective the approach is. And that approach really looks a lot at brain development, right? Brain development, neurotypical development, and matching skills to that were missing in children with autism. That's exactly what I was looking for. So I did go and become certified in that. And I've infused a lot of the information I learned into my behavioral knowledge. Now, in ESDM, 
the, the skills are broken down and the data collection is a little bit different. There's sort of like a plus or minus system, like did a skill occur or not, not occur within a 15 minute interval. And around 2013 in California anyway, insurance laws, insurance laws passed, which provided ABA services for families now um, medically necessary for children with autism. And insurance companies do not fund early start Denver models. So what I did was infuse it all together, right? What I did was take some of the skills, some from the Early Start Denver model checklist, some from my own checklist, and put them together and broke them down into very specific, very specific goals with very clear ways to measure those skills. And I developed a graph where I was checking for progress. I matched it to my Vinelands that I was using. And lo and behold, I was able to have insurance companies pay for this type of work. It is a skill acquisition based type of programming. Now, we know, you know, a lot of insurance companies want folks to focus on decreasing problematic behavior. And I also in my job currently right now work with children and adults in that have severe problem behavior. And they're kind of different. The type of skills I'm talking about right now, I'm going to talk specifically about joint attention and the concept of joint attention as a behavioral cusp, cusp skill. And the type of skills I'm talking about really should be focused on children who are in early intervention programs. And let me tell you why. So a behavioral cusp, what is that? That's basically any behavior or skill or response that you teach that has a sudden and dramatic consequence that extend beyond that specific skill, right? Kinds, skills that are often considered behavioral cusp skills include social referencing or eye gaze, coordinated eye gaze, joint attention, which I'll explain what that is shortly, and imitation skills. All of these skills are considered behavioral cusp skills because once you teach those skills, they're considered prerequisite skills for other communication and language and learning skills. So they're super important. Right. So I'm going to focus today specifically on joint attention because it's really hard to teach. It's super freaking hard to teach. Right. Um, it's exhausting. And I'll tell you why it's so hard to teach. And what it means is when an infant. So joint attention skills actually start to emerge in infants at four months old. Okay, That's really early when an infant's attention is drawn to another person's face and or voice, that infant experiences a positive emotion, right? And that is because the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex become activated. Now, I did not know this, right? Nowhere in our ABA training or BCBA coursework is this taught, but it is taught in the Early Start Denver model teachings. So I went through the introductory and then the advanced workshop. And then I also spent some time learning on my own and looking up more research on joint attention. And so I thought about that and I thought, okay, wait a minute. So if when an infant looks at someone, right, coordinates their gaze and hears their voice that activates a positive emotion in their brain, there's an MO, right? Why wouldn't an infant want to look at people, right? We also know as they hit about six, seven months, they start to coordinate their moods, affect, right? Their actions, or emerging imitation. It's a little bit of like learning information. They start to coordinate that based on what they see and hear from 
the other person, the caregiver. Super cool videos you can go on and watch where you can see really young babies change their emotional state based on what they're observing from the person. All right, so we know in autism that the neural, um, neural interactions might be impaired. There's actually research and evidence that suggests there are parts of the brain where the neural connections are impaired and the amygdala and prefrontal cortex are two areas that are suspected. Again, not a neurosurgeon, not a neurologist, but I did learn this in my course and I research it and learn and read articles about it. So I thought, okay, so if a baby's looking and it's activated, and they have a positive affect, there's an MO. So it makes sense that if that connection is not occurring and there's not a positive act affect, sorry, a positive feeling, then there's not going to be an MO for a child on the autism spectrum, which then makes sense why there's an impairment in autism. And the DSM-5 talks about market deficits and social communication and social interaction, which in that definition includes eye gaze. So it totally makes sense to me. And I'm like, oh my gosh, it's like putting the pieces together. So then I think to myself, now we know in, in an autism diagnosis, a child is given levels of support, right? You are diagnosed with autism and then you're diagnosed based on a level of support that is thought you would need for continue of care. There's a level three, level two, level one. That means a child at a level three level of support is going to need more support, right? They're considered the more impacted, the more severe or profound children with autism. At level two are those kids in the middle. Level one are the children that are higher functioning. I hate using that word, but that's what people use. They're mildly impacted with autism. So they may have some level of eye gaze and joint intention, imitation and referencing. And so it's the impairment level is based on how severe their autism, which would make sense, the severity of the, of the neural connections in the brain and their impairment. Okay, right. So then this leads me down. This is how my brain thinks. This leads me think to myself, okay, so if an infant as young as four months are sensitive to the occurrence of joint attention. Now, let's talk about what a joint attention is. It's marked, it's marked by gaze patterns that coordinate looks between people, objects, and events. So that might mean that I'm holding up this can. This is my favorite, bubbly grapefruit water. And if you're listening, you can't see it, but I'm holding up a grapefruit sparkling water. And it would mean that someone holds it up, right? I'm showing you, you look at it, we look at each other and some interaction, some kind of meaningful interaction. It could be nonverbal, could be verbal occurs because we're in this coordinated act place together based on this object, or it could be an activity, or it could be an emotion. So it's this coordination, right? This re reciprocal re interaction with each other, where we're looking at each other and coordinating our gaze based on something that's happening in our environment. Again, leads us to the concept of a motivating operant. There has to be a reason you would want to coordinate that emotion, right? Coordinate that experience with someone else. So if you think about autism, a lot of people actually have said, there's books about it, um, research that talks about for children on the autism spectrum, this coordinated eye gaze may actually cause anxiety, <laughs> right? So not only do we not have an MO, we actually have an ex some anxiety that makes it so that looking at someone else is so adversive and uncomfortable, it's almost punishing, right? 
off. But we know that coordinated eye gaze is a hallmark. It is a behavioral cusp to continue forward with joint attention, imitation, and language and social reciprocal interactions. You can't imitate something if you're not looking at it, for example. So there's also different kinds of joint attention. There is responding to others, right? I hold up my can and show you. You might look at the sparkling grapefruit bubbly can and say like, oh, I like that kind too. And I like this one too. Um, so you're responding or I might show you, I might point up to the sky and say, look at the clouds. They look really interesting. We might, you know, show something like I'll show you something on my phone. Let me show you this video or this text I got. But we coordinate with each other. It's about the experience and the activity. And again, let's go back that we know that that creates a positive feeling in the brain. There's also initiating joint attention, which might be where the little baby or little child shows something to the uh, caregiver or someone else that they're with. They might hold up a toy or a rattle and shake the rattle and look at you to see if you, how you feel about the noise of the rattle and look back to the rattle. And so it's this coordinated experience. And if you think about it, if there's not an MO and that is also maybe aversive, it is incredibly difficult to teach, but you can see why this skill is a behavioral cusp and life-changing, right? Because we've redu hopefully reduced anxiety and created the skill that creates the skill, the steps needed for imitation, social experiences, communication, and conversation. So it's hugely important. So it really begs the diff begs the question. How do we create an MO for a child to even want to look at you? It's super hard. <laughs> it's really, really hard. I'm going to talk about a few things that I have used, and then I'll talk about how you can learn more about this topic. The Early Start Denver model approach very much talks about also this sort of like way to create an experience with a child. And it is involves a lot about creating a motivational experience. It's about making a child want to look at you, want to interact with you. Now, we know children on the autism spectrum are ob tend to be, not all, but tend to be object focused specific. And so shifting your gaze from an object, right? Let's let's think of a sensory toy, right? Let's think of a child who has holding a toy and it is, let's just use a lava lamp type of toy because everyone knows what that toy is and the child is look turning it upside down and looking at it depending on the level impairment for that child on the autism spectrum they are not likely going to reference towards you to see if you're also looking and have a shared experience let alone reference towards you comment about it and or ask you a question about it but that's what neurotypical children do they start doing that by one year of age Think about the three or four-year-old, five-year-old that you start working on the autism spectrum. They're not likely going to develop that skill, right? Um, but neurotypical children do are for sure by around one year of age. A little bit, you know, could have some differentiation, but around one. So the idea would be, why would a child want to look at you in the first place, okay? Now, a lot of people try to work on joint attention through manding programs, right? We create we, one of the things that 
good programs often do is create children, uh, teach children how to ask for the things they want. That's a behavioral cusp skill too, by the way. Being able to ask for the things you want and need helps reduce tremendous amounts of problem behavior. So I should add in there that manding for items, information, attention is a huge skill that is also really, I consider personally behavioral cusp because it is one of the most significant ways to reduce problem behavior, right? But asking for something is not the same as joint attention. But sometimes when we're having children ask for things, once they've learned how to ask, either through verbals, verbalization, signing, um, pictures, communication, AAC devices, once they learn how to ask and they get their needs met, problem behavior is reduced, many programs then start to require an eye gaze for the item, right? I've done that. I've done that a million times. And it's basically the type of program where you withhold the item until the look, the, the gaze happens, right? And the thought would be that Emma was there for the gaze because the child is waiting for the item. It's not delivered. So they look up to see where the heck their item is. It's it's successful. I've done it. It's It can be quite successful, but it usually, it usually um, stalls there. Like that's as far as it goes. That's a fine skill because it creates the situation where a child learns this person handing me something is not just an object. They're a person that I need to reference towards in order to receive the item I want. Perfectly fine skill. Different than joint attention, though. Joint attention involves I'm in the shared experience with you. So I would want to look at you to see your reaction, to see what you're doing or to have more of it. But you can build upon that through a child wanting things from you, right? And this would be a responding to joint attention, not an initiating joint attention, right? Lots of ways that some, sorry, not lots. One way that I've done this has been having a child want more of something, but it's not something that would create a problem behavior, right? It's not typically food or drink. Um, it's often how I've done it through a, sens a sensory social experience. And ESDM talks a lot about these sensory social experiences. And what does that even mean? What it means to me as a behavior analyst is it means a lot of children have a positive affect from things that provide their body with sensory feedback. It could be the lava lamp. It could be squeezes or tickles or bouncing on a ball. It could be bubbles. It could be playing with a slinky, right, for example. So if you think of all these things, they're items that are not something a child, it's not food or drink related, because in my mind, a child should get those anytime they ask, no matter what. And you can slowly build in um, maybe a reference towards to obtain the item, if, as long as you're not problem behavior. But it would be like, what is an activity that provides them positive affect, right? Like the amygdala being interacted. And so I can think specifically of this young girl who very much liked to be tickled. She liked to be sitting down or laying on her bed and tickling. And so I would tickle her and she would laugh and smile, right? And then um, so I would tickle her and then I would wait for a reference or glance towards me before I tickle her again, right? Common, right? Require her a look before I provide the item she wants. But then I have to create a reason for this to be a shared experience, 
And this girl was quite impacted. And so what I started to do was make, before I tickled her, and soon as she looked at me, I did a funny, silly look on my face that also made her look and laugh. Then I tickle her. I mean, this is very basic. Now I'm talking about where she wants to be tickled, but she also now wants to look at my face to see the silly thing and the silly look on my face. Then once she looked at that, provided her with tickles, which was the reinforcement, the item she wanted, right? That one emerged first. That was the easier one to do. I then tried to do it through objects and I did do it through a slinky because she liked to kind of stim on the slinky. What I did was she'd have the slinky, then I'd take the slinky, then I would do something with the slinky and pass it back to her and we'd have the slinky together. I'd kind of pull it away so she'd look and look towards the slinky, she'd look, and then I'd look it back at her and deliver the slinky comparing it exactly at the time she looked back at me like it was very specific so that this getting the slinky back was paired with looking at me and looking at the slinky so if you think about it what we're trying to do is create an mo for a child to want to look at you in the object right and we want to create an mo for the child to want to even have this exchange it's very specific and requires very careful consideration of the skills that you're looking for. So what I want to tell you now is I actually have a whole course on this topic. I have, uh, you can't just listen to a 25 minute podcast isn't going to give you all you need. It's going to give you a start, but it's not going to give you all you need. It, it takes a lot of work. You need to have an understanding of what skills you're looking for how to create an MO, how to reinforce this, this social situation and individualize it for the child. Um, I'm going to be doing more podcasts on this. I do have a website where I am teaching courses. If you want to come to a coursework by me, you can go on my website, which is called socialskillcollab.com. I have for companies a two-hour workshop that I do with Q&A, with checklists of joint attention skills um, and looking at what skills to teach so you can um, write them as immeasurable goals and begin to teach. I also have do in-person training and courses if your organization wants to do an in-person course um, or an all-day course. I have other courses that I teach too that I can do for companies. And I think that when organizations that are specific organizations that are doing early intervention work. And by early intervention, I'm going to mean um, age 18 months up to six years old, particularly one-on-one -on -one and or center-based organizations. These, this specific, these skills, these behavioral cusp skills of joint attention, basic social referencing, imitation, and uh, communication programs are a must. They have to be a part of any early intervention of um, program because it very specifically hits at the DSM criteria, which is the market deficits and social communication and social interaction, right? Specifically those reciprocal engagements and they lead to peer interactions. In my coursework, I do talk about how to teach initiating of these skills and then how to pair it and match it with neurotypical children or peers or other children. They don't have to be neurotypical. And so I think a lot of times social skill programs 
in general, in early intervention programs are missing this core deficit, right? I'll also say that most assessment tools that we use, the insurance companies require, don't include this in them. The specificity of these skills are not included in their so in um, the assessment tools we use. A violin doesn't really hit at it at all. VB map, kind of, yeah, closest thing, for sure, helpful. The social responsive scale, SRS2, looks at it a little bit, but I do think that you can, um, if you took my course, you can see the checklist that very specifically breaks down this specific area of social development teaching that is a, pre a required skill to be taught for all children on the autism spectrum. So you can find it over at my new website, social, socialskillscollab.com. Um, you can also find, if you want to join my monthly Patreon site, I'll post that in my session notes too, and look forward to more podcasts done by me and my partner in crime, Jen Lucero, where we take our podcasts, podcast you're listening to now, and we talk about, about things, all things related to ABA and autism with the eye of a BCBA myself and another caregiver. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day.